You know, I was thinking as I was uh, driving to church this morning, and it was over three hours ago now, but uh, man, it was just so soupy and foggy and nasty out there this morning. I just thought of, I don't know if you ever had the experience of flying in weather like this, but you know, you take off and it, it doesn't take long before you're up there and all of a sudden there's the blue sky again, right? I mean, the blue sky didn't leave. It's there. The, the sun didn't leave. It, it is up there. But obviously the weather, this, this soupiness, this fog kind of covers it up. Just like there is weather that can make a, a blue sky and a bright sun kind of seem almost not there. Boy, just the opposite can happen at night. I don't know if you remember, but uh, the night, two, three nights following Christmas, uh, and I know it was kind of rainy here, but there, there was just a beautiful, huge full moon. Uh, one of those nights, at least where we were, uh, where the moon was so bright, so full, the sky was so clear. You ever, you ever walked outside a night like that and you see shadows? There's shadows on the ground, the trees, because the, the moon is so bright. But we were up in the mountains and there was snow on the ground. I don't, I don't guess I'd really seen this or acknowledged it before. But the snow, the white snow was reflecting the light back up. And so uh, there was one night my wife and I were standing outside late at night, uh, looking at this. And folks, it was so bright, it was almost eerie. I, I don't know if that makes sense. It was, it was just amazing how far you could see, how clear you could see because of this brightness. And then, of course, you know, you stop and remember, the moon's not a source of light, right? Okay, yeah, all right. Oh no, what was that I learned in eighth grade science? Yeah, it's a rock. Yeah, no, it just reflects. It reflects the sun. You know, folks, as you remember one of those nights in your, when you, you see that, you've seen those shadows on the ground. What the moon is to the sun is what you and I are to be to Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus entered this world, he introduced himself to us in John 8, 12. He said, I am the light of the, I'm the light of the world. I'm the source of light. And after teaching that and communicating that, he looks to you and to me, his followers, and says, now let, let your light shine. Now, we're kind of like the rock. We're like the moon. But as we follow him, he's the source of our light. And Jesus has this profound statement, folks. His command is our whole purpose for living. It's your purpose for what you do tomorrow. Let your light shine before men in such a way that when they watch you, they watch your good works... They're going to end up praising God for that. Is that happening in your life? You know, we're, we're, we're in a series right now called One Life. Because that's what we've got. One life. One life to make it count. One life to do something that, that makes a difference, that counts. And folks, that's what God has created us to be and do. He's created us to have a life that makes a difference. To have a, a life that counts. Last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 10, and we said, we saw that we were created for good works. And that good works is more than just about a deed that we go and do or an event that we're a part of. We do good. Our, our lives are going to produce good and produce value. And folks, we said last week that that primary good we do is we live out the good that God has done in us. What God has done for us, we, we do for others. That is our good work. Now, last week we said that as kind of like a big general statement. But today I want to bring that statement down into where we live. I want to bring it down into all of our relationships and see what that good work looks like. These good works, remember Ephesians 2.10 said that God's already prepared for us. 
I don't have to scratch my head and say, now, gosh, what's the good work I'm supposed to do? What, what will count? No, he's described that for us in Scripture. So let's look at that this morning. Ephesians, we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 4. We're actually going to be looking at a series of passages all inside Ephesians 4 through 6 this morning. So turn your Bible to Ephesians 4.32. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some in the chairs in front of you or down the row there, point to it, have somebody hand it to you. But uh, we're going to be walking through a number of passages uh, all right here together. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Now the first two passages that we're going to look at are character qualities of things that you, of God has done in our life that we're to reflect in all of our relationships. There's no specific relationship. It is, this is how we, rea- how we act in all of our relationships. It does say one another. Now, I can take you to other passages that say these character qualities are something we do for all people, including the world, including unbelievers. But when it says one another, it's saying, hey, we are to be doubly careful that we're acting this way with each other here in the body of Christ, here inside the church. Make sure your relationships are described by these character qualities. So let's see what it it says here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, and be kind. Well, I'd just like to stop right there, huh? Kind. Are you kind? I didn't ask you if you've ever been kind or you've got one person you can be. Are you, would you be described as a, as a dominant character quality of your life? Are you kind? Are you kind to people? Are you kind behind their back? Are you kind back here too? I'm always a little weary. I try not to be one of these people. I'm always a little bit weary about people who come and talk to me bad about somebody else. You know what my first thought is? I wonder what they say about me to other people. Because they do. That's a character quality. You, you think when somebody's talking bad about somebody, that's the first and only time they've done that in their life? No, that's the character quality. It's unkindness. Are, are we kind So why do I got to be kind? Because God was kind to to you. Be kind. Be compassionate. You know, feel. Have feeling. Uh, Try to have a feeling for people. Where are they? What are they going through? What's happening in their lives? I want to feel that. I want to understand that. I want to respond in light of where they are. And then the really big one, be kind, be compassionate. Uh, Your translation may say tenderhearted. And then it says forgiving. Do you hold on to it? Do you hold on to the anger? Do you hold on to the hurt? Do you hold on to the disappointment? Are you working at letting it go? Not reacting in that anger and that that bitterness. Are we forgiving? Now, to me, the key word in verse 32 is not kind, compassionate, or forgiving. It says two words, just as. Just as God did for you. It says here, just as God forgave you, but it could have said, as God has been kind to you, as God has been compassionate to you, we are to do, this is what we said last week, it's what I just said a few moments ago, what's the good work? We do for others what's been done for us. Why do I show kindness and compassion and forgiveness? Because they deserve it? No, that's, it's not even about the other person, it's about me trying to reflect God. And this is what God is like. This is what God has done in my life. And so I'm to reflect that out. The good news is, folks, God expects nothing of you that he hasn't done for you. Isn't that good? 
God does not expect you to do more than he's done. Ah, now, bad news, he does expect you to do at least what he's done. Just as he's shown that kindness, that compassion, and that forgiveness, we are to show that to others. That is a good work that we do. That is what is going to give value and meaning and direction to life. It's what builds a life. It's what builds others. So that's a good work. Second one, Ephesians 5.21. We're going to see another character quality. It's a character quality that God wants of all believers. And, and if you read those two, three verses before it, what you'll see is we're being called to walk in the Spirit, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul describes what a life controlled by the Holy Spirit is. It does a lot of singing, by the way. It likes to sing. If you don't like to sing, eh, the Spirit's not in you. Because if the Spirit's in you, He wants to sing. And it comes out. Okay? Another thing. Ooh, this is an ugly one. If the Spirit's in me, I'm going to be what? Look at verse 21. Submitting. We don't like that word, do we? That is not a good word in our culture, in our nation. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. We're a people who are submissive. We yield. You say, well, what do you mean we yield? What do you, what do you mean we're submissive? I guess I would describe it this way. We're the opposite of the way we usually are. In other words, when we walk into a relationship, we walk into a room, what immediately start, we start doing in our mind is we start evaluating. What does this person mean to me? Does this person make me happy? Does this person help me? Does this person... Everything's about, what's this person doing for me? And if we get to the place where we decide they're not doing a whole lot for us, or even worse, they're hurting us, and what do we start doing? We start backing out of that room. We start backing out of that relationship. You see, I've made my needs the highest goal. And if you're not meeting my needs, then I don't need you. Submission says I enter a room and now I'm focused on you. I'm focused on what your need is in this moment. I'm focused on what's happening in your life. Kind of goes back to being kind and compassionate. If I'm not kind, if I'm not compassionate, I'm going to have a real hard time getting over the bridge of submission, aren't I? Because this whole thing starts becoming focused on thinking about others and even yielding to them. Not just thinking about, I'm thinking about you. Boy, am I thinking about you. <laughs> no, it's I'm thinking about and yielding. I'm, yield, I'm yielding to you. I'm yielding to what's happening in your life. What's happening for you in this moment. What you're feeling, what your need is. Submission is a character quality of the believer. Now, it's real important that you see verse 21 because we're about to go into one of the, you know, the dirty little secrets in Christianity, the verse we try to hide, okay? We're, we, we've, gotten, we've gotten four words now that are operating principles. They're good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in as we walk through this world and live and relate with people. Now, the rest of the passages we're going to look at, God's going to come to a particular person and he's going to say, in that role, here's a good work I've designed for you. Remember 2.10? He prepared these good works beforehand. He's thought about this. And in these different roles, he says, here's the good work for you. First role, 5.22, he talks to wives. And he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. The wife is to submit to her husband. He is, she is to support his leadership, encourage his leadership, help bring about his agenda for the home. Gosh, in our culture, it almost just sounds like I'm speaking blasphemy up here, doesn't it? I mean, that just sounds awful. You know, I did a marriage 
in a church, a local church, not too far from here. And uh, a lot of times when a pastor goes and does a marriage in another church or a wedding in a church, you know, you, you dialogue, okay, here's where this is, here's where that is, you know, what do you do, what do you not, you know, that kind of thing. So I was at this, this local church. Some of you may probably imagine probably from this church. He said, he said, what are you going to say in your sermon? I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, let me just get to where I'm going. You're not allowed to use the word submission. What? what? I said, well, yeah, I, I, I usually do. Well, you can't do that in here. Our people don't like it and won't understand it. And I said, huh, well, Jesus liked it. <laughs> Jesus understood it. What's wrong with your folks? Amen. You see, we make this an, an ugly word and we hide it because you're being called to honor and respect somebody, honor and support their leadership. Now, let's understand what's the good work here. Is this a good work you do for your husband? No, let's go back to 521. What does God want all believers to be? Submissive. So he says, hey, wives, would you do this for me? Would you take the lead in showing your husband in showing your children, in showing your extended family, in showing your friends, your neighbors? Would you take the lead for me in showing the church the dominant character quality I want of all my followers? Would you do that? It'd be an awesome work. In your role as a wife, would you show them that? And not only will you show them this dominant quality I want in believers, but you'll show them how we do things here in the Trinity. You say, where's the Trinity? I didn't see the Trinity in that passage. Yeah, I went and got that one from another verse. But 1 Corinthians 11.3, using the same language, but it adds something. It says, as the husband is the head of the wife, same way that God is the head of Christ. You see, we don't like this word because what we read is second class citizen, you know, has to live for the whims of her husband, uh, doesn't ever, never write, never gets her own way, inferior. Really? Is that, is that what you think is happening in the Trinity? Because in the same way that the wife submits to the husband, that's the exact same way that the son submits to the father. Do you, are, so you're understanding Jesus to be a, a second class citizen. You're understanding Jesus to be inferior. You know, kind of a, a, just a, a whooping post there in that. Re- Do you think that's what we're being shown? Folks, when, when God points to the Trinity, he's saying, hey, listen, what I'm calling for is beautiful. What I'm calling for is nothing more than honoring. That's what we're about in the Christian faith. We honor lives. We honor people. We yield to people. And wives, I want your good work to be that you take the lead in showing your family and the community what this looks like. I I want you to take the lead in showing how we operate here inside the Trinity. Now, ladies, I understand. We talk, talk about this. We bring up all kinds of, what about if he does this or if he's like... I'm not addressing that today. I've had sermons where I did address those kinds of questions. Today, though, we're saying, you see that this good work's not actually about just your husband. It's about how you reflect God. Men, we have an equally challenging. I'm always surprised that we, we fall apart in this passage over what women are being called to do as, as if, you know, men don't have anything to do. Look at Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. Well, that sounds simple enough, Right? I mean, I love pizza, I love football, and I love my woman. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. I can do this. I got that. 
You know, I think that's how we read that. Women are being called to this horrible, very concrete, very difficult task, and men just have to love pizza and their wife. You know, I mean, I, got, I can do this. But you know what? It's not like you like pizza. He, 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 no, he defines it further, doesn't he? Husbands, love your wives, not like you like pizza or like football, but as Christ loved the church. Oh, so I got to love her a lot. I mean, I really, really, really love her, right? Okay, I still got it. I can still, well, okay, let me, I don't think I'm being clear. Let me go one step further. And when I say love her like Christ loved the church, let me remind you how Christ loved the church just as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her. What's that a reference to? The cross. So while women have, hey, a challenging word, submission, men, your love your good work is sacrifice. Very simple. Her needs come first. It doesn't mean your needs don't get met, but when push comes to shove, if we're out of money, out of time, out of energy, then your need 100% of the time gets sacrificed so that her need gets met. Now, guys, that actually implies knowing what her need is, okay? Yeah, so, you know, part of this is we've got to become a student of our wife. We've got to work on understanding what that need is. And oh my gosh, that is a moving target, isn't it? <laughs> the moment you nailed, I know what her need is. It changed like five minutes ago, okay? <laughs> I mean, we need the Holy Spirit for that one, okay? Watch this now. As my kids, as my wife, as you, the church, as my friends watch me love Karen... They should be able to look at that and say, so that's how Jesus loves me. That's what, you see, that's what we're reflecting here. That's what we're showing here. This is what Jesus loved for you. Let me ask you a question, men. Is that what your friends would see? How do you talk about your wife around your friends? Could they watch you with your wife, listen to you talk about your wife, and have a bullseye of what Jesus' love looks like for them? Now, folks, let me, let me pull this together for you here. Ephesians 5, to 33, best directions on the planet on marriage. As a matter of fact, if you get any counsel, if you read anything that is contrary to or different than Ephesians chapter 5, you're reading a lie. And you're reading something, you're, you're getting counsel from something that will ultimately hurt your marriage. Always go to the designer of something for the instructions. God designed marriage. These are the best instructions in the world for making it work. And yet, there's more going on here than, okay, here's the instructions for marriage. You do this and you do this and it'll work. No, there's more than that. Look at verse 32. This mystery, and remember verse 32 is almost near the end of 11 verses about marriage. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking, I know what you're talking about, you're talking about marriage. No, 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 listen to me. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Paul just said what I've been saying all morning. I'm talking not about whether your marriage is fulfilling. I'm talking about not whether you're happy. I'm talking about whether or not your marriage is reflecting Christ and his love for his people. There it is again, folks, over and over and over. Our lives are to reflect him. 
The reason you and I came down this aisle, walked up these steps, stood right here and said, I do, was because said, this is the person that should the Lord tarry and should I live 50 more years, this is the person with whom I'm going to seek to reflect Christ with. I wonder right now, and I would include myself in this statement, I wonder right now if there is a single marriage in this room that lived one second this past week thinking that their marriage was for the great purpose of reflecting Christ. To their kids, to their in-laws, to neighbors, to their church friends. Our marriage is to reflect Christ. One question guides me in my marriage. Is to guide me, is to guide us. Am I acting in a way, am I building my marriage in a way that people see God? Period, end of story. Am I doing this in a way, am I handling this in a way that anybody around me is going to be able to? To see God. Because the purpose of marriage is to reflect Christ in the church. It's to point people to Him. Now, husbands and wives are not the only ones who reflect Christ. No, kids can do that too. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. We're just going to keep moving through relationships. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Kids, your good work... The work you do in this world that is good is you reflect, you remind us adults that obedience is the way things work. That honoring authority, whew, that's a big one in our culture, isn't it? I mean, I mean folks, if you're an American, you don't like authority. I don't, I don't think we in the church are a whole lot better at that. I mean, it's, it's just the culture, we've absorbed it and man, authority's just not on our mind. We just don't like acknowledging that or re- we put up with it. We live in it. We don't care for it a whole bunch. And yet, the Christian life is lived with a strong authority structure. God puts authority all through Scripture. I put that authority there. I know it's a sorry authority, but that's what I'm doing in your life. That's what I'm building in your life right now. So kids are to reflect that obedience works, that that authority works. Now, any kid that reads this, I would have sure said, yeah, but my mom and dad don't deserve it. Well, yeah, but my mom and dad aren't right. That's okay. God's right, and God's worthy of it. As a matter of fact, young people, the good work you're doing and obeying and respecting authority in a certain moment may not even be for your mom and dad. Did you ever think about the good work being for your siblings or for your friends? I mean, think about what young people do when they get together. At least half the time is talk about somebody bad that's over them. I mean, whether it's the coach or the teacher or the cop or mom and dad, and yet... A follower of Christ, a young person that's a follower of Christ should be reflecting to his friends and siblings around them. Hey, listen, at the end of the day, authority ultimately is going to get us where we want. Not, not, not the person over us, our respect for authority. Obedience is going to ultimately get us where we want to be. That's the good work that a young person does. And parents, we can help make that a little easier, can't we? I mean, obedience is always a challenge, but we can make it a little easier. Look what God says to parents in 6.4. What's the good work they do? And fathers, and that word is a governmental head type word, so it absolutely includes fathers and mothers. It's parents. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children. Now, like one translation says, don't exasperate your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Don't exasperate. What's that mean? You know what I find exasperating? I find our government exasperating. Man, they've been working on being exasperating for about 40 years now. 
You know know what's exasperating is the overwhelming amount of regulation and laws and taxes and, and how burdensome, how oppressive that is becoming. Now, let me be clear. I don't have a problem with taxes. I don't have a problem with obeying laws and regulations. It's that when you can't connect the dots of what good this is. What is the point of this? What is the the purpose of this? Where does this help anything? And the more you can't connect any dots, the more exasperating it is to do that. By the way, while you're complaining about the government, remind yourself that you're just like the government. Because parents have an incredible tendency to exasperate kids. We put rules and laws that govern the home that aren't about their well-being. It's just about them getting them out of my hair right now. It's about them making me look good. It's easy to put demands out there, rules out there that they can't. What is this? Remember, we're training and instructing them in the Lord in life. The challenge here is for us absolutely to call them to obedience. But when we call them to obedience, we're instructing and we're explaining. This is why we do this in our home. This is how this, this is why this helps us function as a whole. You got to learn to function as a whole. You got to learn that you're on the team. You know, if you don't get this right in here, you're not going to get it right out there. We're constantly training what a rule is about and how it is for them. Have you ever stopped and realized that not a single command in here, not a single rule in here is for God? God doesn't benefit if I tell the truth. If I tell the truth right now, God doesn't get something out of that. If I'm sexually pure and faithful to my wife, you think God gets a bonus check or something? Gets an award at the end of the... If I don't murder anybody in here today, what, God gets some kind of uh, uh, an award? No, God does not get anything out of my obedience. You know who gets something out of my obedience? I do. Every one of God's laws is for our well-being individually and corporately. It makes the home, it makes the government, it makes community, it makes life work. And he, draw, he connects all the dots for us. There's not a single rule in here. I just wanted to see if you could jump through this hoop. I, I just wanted to see if you could do this. It doesn't matter if you do it. I just wanted to see. No. Everything he does is for our good. So parents, the good work we do for our kids is we help them transfer a respect of, for authority from us to God. We, we help them transfer an understanding of what obedience is about to us to an obedience to God. Now, let's, Wade's got to leave the house sooner or later and go outside. Let's go to work. Look at chapter 6, verse 5. First word there, slaves. You know, the Bible has wrongly been accused of promoting slavery or being okay with slavery because as we're getting ready to read here, we're going to read about slaves. And gosh, Paul doesn't say it's wrong at all. He just tells them how to live in it. Well, there's, there's two things about what's going on here. First of all, there is a reality here to which Paul is speaking to. The scripture does that. It speaks to the good, the bad, and the ugly and tells us how to live in the good, the bad, and the ugly. The reality of this earth and and how we walk. And God's word guides us in every circumstance and situation. The other thing in this particular case right here that Paul is addressing, don't read into this our understanding of slavery. Don't don't read into this United States 1800s pre-Civil War slavery. Uh, You might remember when we were studying Romans I, told, I was telling you about Rome. Rome had a population of a million people. Over half the population was slaves. 
So slaves were doctors, they were lawyers, they were people who bought and sold, who moved and worked, who had even had a certain level of freedom, but they were enslaved to somebody, they were bound to somebody. There was a variety of reasons that could be. Some of them were not good reasons. Some of them would not want to be in that. Some of them freely chose to be in that. So that is the, the context of which Paul is writing to, not maybe what would first come to our minds. Anyway, verse 5, slaves, and I think we can read this as employee, employers. And some of you do feel like a slave at work, don't you? So the word fits just fine. Verse 5, slaves, obey your ma- human masters with fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, don't work only while being watched. Well, that's no good. I'll erase that out of my Bible. <laughs> In order to please men, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Render service with a good attitude. I'll erase that word. (laughs) This is awful, isn't it? Let's keep reading. Verse verse 8. Knowing that whatever whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. I mean, folks, the bottom line is we're not working for that boss, are we? Who are we working for? We're working for God. Every day, not starting tomorrow, every day of your life, you're working for God. Who is what? He's kind, compassionate, and forgiving. And that, that knowledge that I'm working for God should show up in my attitude. It should show up in the way I treat people at work and the way I treat the boss at work and the way I talk about work. It should show up in my honesty. It should show up in my efforts. Folks, bottom line, same as all these other positions, the good work we do, we go to work and by people watching us work, they say, man, I want that. Man, I, if whatever he's got, that's what I want. Anybody that can have that kind of sense of meaning and purpose and and energy and excitement in this place, I want what he's got. Now, is that going to happen in every workplace? No. Because remember, we're reflecting light. You know, when you turn on the light, the cockroaches scurry, right? Yeah, when you're you're light, sometimes what we're doing is we're shining light on sin. And and that, that, for some people, leads them to Christ. For others, it makes them angry. And they take that out on you. They think you're the problem, not Christ and his word. And so they take that out on you. But regardless of what our lives do at that workplace, this is our goal. Our goal is that people see God and want God by watching the way we work. Oh gosh, I'm almost afraid to ask this question. Would anybody want God after watching you the last five days? Yes. Looking at you at work, man, I want God. Is that what's going to happen? Look at verse, last verse, verse 9. And masters, bosses, treat them, treat your employees the same way. The same way as what? You're remembering. You're working for God. We're all working for God here without threatening them because they, you know that both their and your master is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. The bottom line is the greater reality is not your authority and power. The greater reality is not that you're called supervisor or boss or owner. The greater reality is we are all working for the same boss. The greater reality is that we are both going to stand before the boss and we're going to stand there equally. And so what Paul's saying is, hey, listen, if I was you, I'd get out in front of us a little bit and I'd start treating that employee with some dignity and respect because one day you're going to be standing before the boss on equal footing. You know, I kind of see... God, what is, God is authority. God is power. 
Well, a lot of us in here in different places in life, whether it's parenting or work, it may be as coaching, it can be in a variety of places, but if you have any kind of authority, any kind of power, what I see God saying here to bosses and parents is, hey, listen, you're reflecting me. I didn't bully you into obeying me. I didn't overpower you into obedience. So don't, don't go out there and be a bully. Don't go out there and overpower and threaten because that's not reflecting how I use authority and power. That's not reflecting me. You see, we're reflecting how God uses authority and power and it's for the good of others. Now, folks, we take these, what have we looked at today? Man, we've looked at kindness, compassion, forgiveness, submission, uh, sacrifice, uh, respect for authority and obedience, uh, helping others, building their lives, helping make sense, working like we're working for God, treating people with equality, dignity, and respect. Now, while we have been given these words in certain settings, in certain roles, we can pick up these things and carry them into all places and all relationships. These, what we see, we're getting some insight into how God, what God wants us to reflect to the world. Whether it's work or school or the ball field or whether it's a school function or Boy Scouts, wherever we're going, these are the kinds of things that we're reflecting. Now, there's just one reason that we don't do it. Yes, I just implied you don't do it and that I don't do it. One reason. Why is it? They don't deserve it. Right? I'm not being kind to them. They don't deserve it. I'm not submitting to them. They'll take advantage of me. I'm not obeying that person. They're not worthy of it. They don't deserve it. You know, Jesus knows people don't deserve it. And he addresses us that with us at the end of Matthew chapter 5. And I'm pulling out one verse. I encourage you to read the verses around it. But Matthew chapter 5 verse 46, Jesus says, let me get this right. You're okay with loving people who love you? Hey, man, the tax collector does that. I, I, I don't think tax collectors had a better reputation back then than they did now. <laughs> he says, let me get this right. He says this in another verse. You're going to love those who love you. You're going to do for those who do for you. You're not showing the world anything. He actually says, you know what? A God hater can do that. Somebody who hates God, somebody who has no interest in God can love somebody who they're going to get it back from, who can do for somebody for whom they're going to get it back from. You understand what Jesus is saying there? You understand what we're seeing in Ephesians 4? Folks, our good work may not even start until somebody doesn't deserve it. Our best opportunity to reflect God may be when somebody doesn't deserve it. Oh, wait a minute. You know what? I missed maybe a piece of the logic here. Remember, what's our good work? We're doing for others what God has done for us, right? Now, we weren't operating under the impression that what God did for us, we deserved, were we? Folks, to God, we are just like others. We're mean. We're unappreciative. We're not doing our part. Anything and everything that somebody has been to you that makes them unworthy of you reflecting what God has called you to reflect, that's what you've been to God. So our best opportunity to reflect God is in that place that somebody, from the home to the work to anywhere else, it's in that place that they don't deserve it. 
Every wrong relational decision you've ever made begins with the thought, they don't deserve it. Every right and God-like decision you've ever made in a relationship begins with the thought, grace. So, man, that sounds like a great way to be taken advantage of. Oh, absolutely. Don't be confused at all. Look what they did to Jesus. You'll absolutely be taken advantage of. Now, when I say that, let me be clear, because, I mean, in our culture, more and more, we're defining love as tolerance. You know, if you love somebody, you let them do whatever they want, think whatever they want. You, you just respect anything and everything about what they're doing. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice in evil. Love is not okay with wrong. Love does not enable wrong. Love does not support wrong. So yes, you can be loving and gracious and say, we need to draw some lines here. There is a right and there is a wrong. You can be loving and gracious and say, no. But it's grace that is driving that. Even when we're saying no, we have come to the place of saying, I think no is going to be the best opportunity for me to show them God in this moment. I think drawing the line is going to be the best opportunity because that's the guiding thought everywhere we go in every relationship. How can I act right now so that they worship God? And don't think of that as just how we act in front of unbelievers. How do I act in front of a believer so that this already worshiper of God worships him even more? Man, look how awesome God is. Look how good and perfect his ways are. Unbeliever, how do I act in a way that they can become a worshiper of God. How can I act? And you know what? When we throw the word how out there, we don't have to guess what the answer to how is, do we? Have we not just spent the whole morning saying that, boy, God's got some very clear ideas of how we do that in this kind of relationship, this kind of relationship, this environment, that environment. God answers the word how. He makes it very clear how you and I can reflect Him. How can I act? So that he, she, they see God and worship him. Let's pray.